Yeah, that's a you know that's a, a good thing to think about or just stay with for a moment because I think as uh, you know smaller developers, you know there's and especially in our case, and I think this is maybe the same for a number of people who listen to your podcast. Like we really want to do something that has an impact on a community. So the uh, but there still has to be financial viability at all you know phases of the project and uh, you know if things go sideways or south. So there still needs to be a, an economic out that makes sense, mm-hmm. even if you don't, if you're not able to to uh, complete the original mission, which is to build something that really adds to a community and and uh, creates a greater sense of place. So for us and and perhaps other place makers, it's uh, it's something to keep in balance to know that you can do something that you think has purpose and pursue that path, but there always needs to be some way that you can recoup, recover, in case things don't work out according to the original plan. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 52 of the Placemaking Podcast. I am extremely excited to share this next conversation with all of you here today on the show. And today on the show, I have Todd Smith of 356 out of Toronto, Ontario. Now, what started as a surprisingly plausible model of a passive solar chalet for a grade four science fair culminated over many years as a creative work for developing places where people flourish. Today, through his development firm, 356, Todd creates places where people love to live and are proud to call home, humanizing beautiful places and characterful green neighborhoods that encourage health and well-being. While the role of developer takes shape in literal built environments, Todd has learned that a developer's core values lie in holding a vision for what could be in gathering, directing, supporting, and challenging talented people to be imaginative, to solve problems, and to work together to create something truly exceptional. This is what drew him to modular construction for a purpose-built rental enclave to begin with. The company is developing, which overlooks a 10-acre conservation area in the next urban community near Toronto, Canada. Todd and 356 are making places for people who want something different, something more responsible, something that inspires, and something that ultimately enables. They're doing the same for purpose-driven placemakers, aligned developers, and investors who share the vision of renewing people and places while multiplying their capital resources, stewardship, and impact. 356 does not try to mimic the past, It doesn't aim for mass appeal. Instead, the company creates spaces for the many lifestyles that don't mesh with the majority of homes being built. Design forward spaces and architecturally engaging buildings that both respect and strengthen communities. In this episode, we take a look at how modular is being used in this setting, what advantages it may afford, some myths surrounding prefabrication, and why it's important to plan for contingencies no matter what the construction method. There's loads of great information in this episode, and I greatly appreciate Todd for taking the time 
out of his extremely busy schedule to discuss this topic of modular construction and development with me here today. As always, if you have enjoyed the show, I'd ask that you please subscribe to the show and share with your friends in the industry. I can promise you there will be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hey, welcome to the show, Todd. Hey, Matt. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you about the stuff we have on the agenda. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on here. Um, We've talked a few times before this, and I thought it'd be really fun to have you on the show and kind of share some of your experiences uh, with what you're doing right now and and your past. But just to begin, can we just start off with learning a little bit more about yourself, your background, and, and some of your various projects and mission going forward? Yeah, for sure. So I would say that this whole thing started for me in, in a grade four science project. And I would, I would guess that maybe most people's development career doesn't go back quite that far, but uh, we were doing, we had to have a science experiment done for, you know, the typical science fair that most kids have to do. And I chose to make this passive solar house. So it was a, it was a great fun project and I was really engaged with it. So I was really concerned about how it looked I was really concerned about how energy efficient was going to be and how innovative this was, this idea of a passive solar house. And um, and so when I fast forward to a development career, oh, I think back to those that early experience of wanting to create a beautiful place for people to live, something that's innovative, something that sits right in its environment and something that makes a real connection to the things around it, that whole idea of the built environment fitting in with with uh, its context. So that's kind of where it all started. And then a number of years ago, I got in, I got involved in uh, urban housing more on a design end of things. So I partnered up with a guy and we were uh, basically doing kind of green building, infill building in the city of Toronto. And we did a number of projects together and that progressed into doing uh, some of my own projects, which were primarily urban infill rehab type projects where we were essentially reconditioning uh, existing homes in uh, very urbanized neighborhoods in a, in a pretty concentrated area of town. And that kind of, that was driven by really two things. One is I grew up in a small town and just enjoyed the sense of community that we had. And then when I moved to Toronto and for people who don't know, Toronto was really comprised of, I think it's something like 37 distinct neighborhoods. So it's not monolithic. It's, it's very uh, walkable and each neighborhood has a very distinct flavor. So we live in an area known as Roncesvalles Village, which is on the west side of Toronto. And pretty much all of our adult life, you know, my wife and I as a, as a kidless couple through to having a family lived in this neighborhood where we walked everywhere. We did most of our shopping on our street. We lived carless for a number of years before we had to run kids off to programs and hockey and all that kind of thing. And just became, you know, just became uh, more enamored with this idea of being able to know your neighbors, uh, having a sense of place, you know, knowing that you're kind of connected and rooted somewhere and that all of your kind of daily needs, both socially, um, just practical things like shopping for food are all done within a 500 to a, you know, I was going to say kilometer, kilometer, (laughs) but you know, 500 meters from your house. Most people in in the world would understand exactly, but we can, we can provide the translation for (laughs) those of us in the (laughs) U S. Yeah. So the, the principles from that early experience of, 
you know, being something that's uh, connected to place kind of translated into what I'm doing now. And so that's currently uh, doing a ground up purpose built uh, development of eight duplex, uh, or I guess four duplexes, but eight units within a, a very uh, small town uh, outside of Toronto, but in a very naturalized setting. So it overlooks a 10, 10 acre conservation area, but it's still easily walkable to all the things that people would want to pick up on a daily shop or go for a quick bike ride downtown to, to pick up things connected to the beach, connected to their its surrounding neighborhood. So we're really looking forward to putting this together so that people can feel a sense of place in a community, but also access to nature and being connected to, um, you know, their natural environment. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So you were thinking about this at sixth grade. Maybe. I don't, think I, realized, <laughs> I don't think I realized what was going on at the time. But like many of us, when we look back at formative experiences, that was certainly one for me. And when I was thinking about like, how do they end up doing what I'm doing? Right. That's that really, I think, shaped a lot of of uh, where it's gone. Interestingly enough, I think many of us find that the things that we love to do, we we have those experiences in childhood that inform that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So did you win? You know what? I can't remember. I don't know what happened with it. <laughs> it didn't matter. It was about the experience, right? It was. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So, you know, you've kind of lived in this urban environment for a while and, and you wanted to kind of bring that. It sounds like you kind of want to bring that to somewhere that's almost borderline suburban, but, you know, still walkable. Um, is, is that going to be kind of your mo going forward is that what you'd like to focus on or uh, what does your ideal project kind of look like going forward that's a really good question <laughs> initially when we bought this this piece of land the thought was well let's just find other similar opportunities in this town and we'll try and create a sense of uh concentration of kind of, of development in these kind of missing middle type type of uh, housing infill projects and see what we can do to you know, have a positive impact in a, in, a, in a community. So we're looking at other pieces of property in this town, but that could be ground up. It could be something that's existing. So we're open to either one of those things, but it also may be that we can kind of find a pattern of development that we can then reproduce in other similar contexts. So we're looking at two different avenues in which to take this current, this current kind of project direction. Gotcha. Gotcha. So just curious, was that coming from a consultant standpoint? I'm always interested. Was that already entitled for duplexes or did you have to rezone that? I don't, I don't really know yeah. how that works in Toronto. But. That's a good question. So this, this piece of property was rather interesting because it sat vacant for, I'm going to say maybe 25 years. And most people thought that nothing could be done with it. It sits in a floodplain, but it's right at the very end of uh, an existing town street. So the biggest challenge there were, I guess there were two challenges. One was to establish that we could actually create uh, four separate entitled lots in order to be able to get some sort of density there. And so we had to go back to the original, the original, um, uh, words escaping me here. Uh, the original, I guess, uh, caddy plan. There you go. The original caddy plan had four lots, but over the years it had just been amalgamated into one uh one pin number, as it's called here. Gotcha. So we had to go back and find a way to separate them back into those four lots. So that was the first challenge. 
And then the second challenge was to be able to come up with something that would satisfy the conservation authority uh, in terms of their 100 year flood, uh, flood plan or flood event. Mm -hmm. So that took a while to work itself through. But once we got through those two things, there was a certain cap on our density. We didn't have to rezone because it was already an R3, but uh, we were restricted to those eight, um, eight residential units due to floodplain considerations. Okay. So there were a few things we had to wind through and it took probably when it was all said and done about a year and a half to get that complete. Wow. wow. That's a, that's a hefty process. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the process probably wasn't that much different than maybe most other um, approvals process, but the added layer of the, the conservation authority bureaucracy just meant that there was more, there's more interplay or interaction between those, those two uh, governing bodies the municipality and, and the conservation authority that required just more conversations. And there was also a turn, a change in, in leadership at the conservation authority at the time. So that created some additional delays. So if that hadn't happened, maybe it might've shortened our time frame. But I think that's maybe right. one thing for anyone who's thinking about a project like this to consider is when you have more than one body involved in making a decision and they have, you know, related, but not necessarily, maybe overlapping, but not necessarily uh, congruent regulations, then there's just more, more things to navigate. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, that's good words of advice. For yeah, sure. hire a good planner, as right. as many of you probably already know that that really helped us out. Just somebody who knew who knew both parts of the system and knew the people involved in right. uh, in both of the both of those areas. It helps. The relationships really helped. Right, I was about to say, and and knew who to talk to, and right. Yeah, and we were also very involved. And uh, I mean, this is maybe goes without saying, but you know, really made an effort to understand the priorities of, of all the parties and made sure we were really authentically nice, and not just to, not just to get what we wanted, but we were really concerned about wanting to do something that uh, that was going to meet the needs of those those two main stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, navigating red tape. That should be mm -hmm. another another thing you put next to developer's name among yeah. The, the many other titles. So, you know, with with this project, you're starting to look at utilizing uh, modular housing, modular construction for uh, this project. And I guess, what was your thought process when you started to to look into that option? Well, I'm sure we'll have many more questions to go from there, but just the yeah. initial thought process. Yeah, you know what? You know where it started is, I, um, as I mentioned, I started out more on the design end of things, and I I love I love design. I love uh, thinking about, you know, how to make a really good uh, layout for people to live in, like something that's simple, light, open. Uh, those things are important. Connecting and integrating the outdoors and the indoors, and um, but I found that over the years I wasn't as excited about the actual construction management part mm -hmm. of things. There were just, you know, always, I'm sure a lot of us can, re can relate to this, the inevitable budget overruns, the inevitable time extensions, mm -hmm. and I wanted to try and avoid that as much as possible. And so when I started looking for solutions, I, I, uh, I'd, I'd had a long time interest in modular and prefabricated housing. And I thought, hey, wonder if it can work here. And, um, and that would eliminate me having to you know, oversee a construction uh, management process which I didn't think I was particularly gifted at. 
and nor did I really want to do. And so that's where it started. Like, you know, where can we find a partner who can really handle the construction? And how can we use these, these more modern construction methods to, to accomplish that? The other thing, and then maybe, maybe others can relate to this as well, is that on a, on a site-built house there's, or a site-built you know, project, there's typically a lot of waste. And uh, you know, as mm-hmm. I would go out to the sites we were working on, I would just see how much would go into a bin, you know, offcuts and, and just stuff that was, you know, that couldn't be used again because it was, uh, you know, specific to that site. You know, I just, I didn't like that part of the construction process, just all the waste. And to be, um, and because we're trying to do something that is demonstrating good stewardship, we thought, you know, let's, let's, you know, modular is more efficient in that perspective, from that perspective. And, uh, you know, stuff that, that is offcut can be used for other purposes in a factory and, and that sort of thing. So that was probably the second motivation. That's a great point. That's one that doesn't get talked about quite as much, but, um, you know, being confined, being controlled and being precise, um, you know, you're able to cut down on, on waste. You're able to cut down on um, user or not user error, but contractor air when when measuring and when cutting and when you know you're everything is you know it's it's controlled so you're you're cutting out a lot of those uh potential mishaps and and probably i mean it it probably gives you a, a better end product as far as everything being constructed to spec i mean everything is like I said, it's controlled. So that's a good point. Yeah, I think that's true. Like, you know, if a module's got to travel along a highway, typically uh, I think these modules need to be constructed perhaps a little stiffer or maybe a little, uh, because they, they do have to travel. So uh, I think we get maybe some additional structural benefit there as well. And I would say maybe the third benefit, and this from a developer can be uh, really important. And that is we, we, uh, we thought, because we have to do some, uh, infrastructure work here, like bringing in sanitary and water and that sort of thing. We wanted to try and keep our entire construction process to a fairly tight uh, window mm-hmm. so that we could minimize our construction finance costs. So the thought was that, you know, if we can start, say, you know, month one and get our infrastructure done, it's not a big infrastructure play. So it's maybe going to take six weeks. Right. We can time it such that our foundations are done shortly after that. And then the modules are dropped shortly after that. And then we can get everything buttoned up and and um, and finished on the interiors that within three to four months we can have our entire project complete and then be into a permanent uh, financing situation which is of course much less expensive so that was the third reason why we thought this this could work well here that's awesome yeah that's uh that's typically what i hear is is more of the the timing um and you know also when it gets to the site, it, it's, you know, you don't need necessarily a framer out there. You can, <laughs> it, it's much easier. It requires less subcontractors to actually make this, make it happen. And uh, yes. cuts down costs that way for sure. Yeah. And I think if, um, you know, if I was thinking of something that maybe, it's, you know, initially I thought, hey, this is probably going to cost less money to build. So that was a myth that I think, was uh, corrected in my mind fairly early on. <laughs> I don't. I don't think it's any less expensive to build this way. 
other than uh, timelines can be reduced. And right. if planning is good and you know you don't have things uh, that throw a monkey wrench into your timing, then financing costs can be can be reduced as well. So perhaps there's some overall project expense reduction, but the actual per square foot cost I'm finding is probably similar to what we would have had to do on a, on a conventional stick site bills place. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, that's, that's one I've often seen. And then, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before, but the scheduling is a little bit outside of your control as far as production goes, which could slow things down. And uh, it's, it's often something that it, it's obviously become uh, more so a problem now with getting actual materials, you know, demand right now is, is skyrocketing, but I guess, can you speak to the fact that you do have a little loss of control in the actual production process? And, and you know, that's something that needs to be discussed prior to yeah. actually getting into it. Yeah, that's a very good point. So we're working with a, um, a modular manufacturer here that has seen their demand for housing in this in the pandemic era increased by something like three or four fold. So as an example, pre-pandemic, this company had, I think, five full-time designers who are working with clients, whether they be single-family home clients or developers, you know, for a multifamily type of a setup, they had five, five designers working on projects. So over the course of the pandemic, because of the demand for people who want to have second residences or move out of the city or, you know, the, uh, you know, they're building some sort of multiplex, they've had to add 16 new designers. They, they've gone up from five to 21. Jeez. So that just gives you an idea of just the level of demand for housing in general, but specifically for this company. So, you know, getting things they're just, so they're having to learn how to do things virtually with, you know, three or four times the client demand load. And, um, and so it's been challenging to work through a lot of the initial design process just because of availability and, you know, the efficiency of review and those sorts of things. So, and also it's taking longer to get things uh, through their vendors. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also, it's also taking longer to get stuff approved in municipalities. So we had originally hoped that we'd be dropping modules there in October but I think what's probably going to happen now is we're looking at it going into production in most likely January and then having delivery, you know, probably starting in the late winter, early, early spring here. So you know, as a developer, of course, you know, we're holding, we're holding onto land. We've got holding costs, et cetera. So one of the things that we'll now need to consider is do we hold on to this, this land for the next several months and continue with our business strategy or, do we pivot some way? Is there some other way to, to uh, build these out? Or do we just uh, you know, go to plan B, which in this case might be prepare the land, you know, get the infrastructure in and then, and then sell the lots. So we, we have a few options and that was one of the things that we had in mind when we bought this property that just depending on what happened with macro or micro economic conditions, local eco- economic conditions, we'd have a few different directions to go. But I think if you're thinking modular, one thing would be to, would be to find out uh, from your prospective partner just you know what their capacity is, and um, I mean obviously you know they couldn't have 
predicted a black swan event like a pandemic. But um, we probably could have foreseen some of these potential delays and made some adjustments earlier on, I think, if I was looking back on it now, which might have been looking for another prefabricated or prefab partner to see what their capacities were or that sort of thing. No, you've, you've, made, a, you've made several great points, but uh, one I wanted to touch on real quick was that when you went into the project, you understood that there could be some contingencies and you kind of planned as as though you had a way out. I mean, there wasn't, you weren't stuck, you know, you you could have come up with another option to, or you can still to come up with options to still come out on top or, you know, at the bare minimum break even. So, you know, you that's that's something that isn't always thought through from the beginning for people just starting out it's a contingency plan or plans and uh, i think that was very well thought out on your end to just kind of say hey okay things don't work out i can still do this 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 and uh that's a that's a great point yeah that's like you know that's a, a good thing to think about or just stay with for a moment because i think as uh you know smaller developers you know, there's, and especially in our case, and I think this is maybe the same for a number of people who listen to your podcast, like we really want to do something that has an impact on a community. So the, uh, but there still has to be financial viability at all, you know, phases of the project. And, uh, you know, if things go sideways or south, so there still needs to be a, an economic out that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't, if you're not able to, to uh, complete the original mission, which is to build something that really adds to a community and, and uh, creates a greater sense of place. So for us and, and perhaps other place makers, it's, uh, it's something to keep in balance to know that you can do something that you think has purpose and pursue that path, but there always needs to be some way that you can recoup, recover in case things don't work out according to the original plan. Yeah, I like exactly how you said that. So uh, I had a recent, a fairly recent discussion with a developer that was acquiring several parcels to create more of a master plan community. And, uh, you know, he, he started by talking to people, um, you know, in the community to start getting gauging interest for selling their parcels. And, and, uh, but, you know, their, their bare minimum was how much they could get when they sold it just in case something else went south. So they always had a fallback if, you know, half of them wouldn't sell to a certain level or, or market rate, then, um, you know, they, they had a way out and they could sell all the other lots back if they needed to, but just, you know, you can still, like you said, you could still pursue your passion and your goals, but obviously, they have to make money or else it's, it's all for not really. So. Yeah. I guess there's the old adage, no margin, no mission. So, <laughs> or you, not, not a mission for very long. If you know yeah. I mean. yeah. Yeah. That's right. Right. Well, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Sorry. I just had to sidebar there. I, I loved how you said that. Um, and to get back on kind of more of the, the modular, um, houses we talked about you know a myth that you've you've constantly heard was that 
it would be it would be cheaper. Um, but transition that into do you do you believe there is a place for modular construction like this for you know um, general density and still being able to have this placemaking um, aspect to it like like you mentioned you are I mean, you, you call yourself a placemaker as well. I mean, you're creating great spaces and be that urban or, or this, you know, outside, just outside of urban. But um, do you see a place for uh, modular construction in, in placemaking and, and development? Yeah. yeah, I think so. Like we're looking at another site close to this one where I think a modular solution would work very well. And for some of the reasons that I mentioned earlier, I think the modular industry is becoming more mainstreamed is the right word. I mean, it's been around for a long time, right. but the, um, you know, with technology, the solutions I think are becoming more, uh, more appealing and have, uh, you know, so maybe some, as I mentioned, maybe there's not a huge difference on cost, but you know, like you can get you know, 90% plus of all the construction done in the factory in a controlled environment and have a product that's very flexible. It's, I think maybe one of the misconceptions many people have about modular perhaps still is that it's, you're thinking like a trader park home or something like that. <laughs> right. But, um, but modular housing is very flexible. And so you, you can be very uh, innovative with design and, you know, this stuff, you know, the stuff that we're doing with this project is extremely um, energy efficient and um, and so you know you get really tight homes, and for a developer who's looking to simplify construction, I think it has a has a lot of appeal. And um, so I think going forward, like I mentioned, we are looking at a, another parcel that we would I think suit modular well. And even at even if we don't save uh, you know anything on a traditional site build uh, project, you know it just simplifies simplifies our processes because that's almost entirely outsourced. To uh, a company who's, you know, very experienced and uh, and is able to execute better than we probably could in house. Now that's a that's another great point. Is um, maybe it opens up the doors for others that are looking to do some some projects, but maybe don't have that construction management experience. So there's still construction management involved. I mean, you still have to you know, prepare the site and bring in subcontractors for the utilities and all that good stuff and finish out. But it's greatly reduced um, with the advent of, you know, your structure is already there. Um, it, it cuts out a lot of that. So, you know, maybe, maybe modular opens the door for somebody similar to you where they've, they enjoy the aspect of, creating the deal, you know, creating the space, but maybe would like that work, you know, the actual design work to be handed off and designing construction really for the, the structure. So. Yeah. I think it allow if, if you're, if you think your unique ability or your unique, unique uh, contribution to a project is the vision and uh, you know, the big piece organizational structure, like almost being the empresario where you're in the middle of a, of a bunch of moving parts and able to 
direct the orchestra, then I think modular can fit very well into that kind of that kind of uh, a kind of an organizational structure. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So to come back, we've used the the term placemaking a few times or placemaker the few times. What what do you see is really the the role of a placemaker? What do you see as uh, what is what is placemaking really to you? I, I love hearing this from others. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, and I maybe have touched on it on a few uh, occasions in our conversation so far. But when I think of placemaking, I'm thinking, you know, what it feels like to be connected to the built environment and the community, and also to nature. And so, even in an urban environment, like I'm sitting in my home here in Toronto, looking at a, a window, and it, Toronto, at least our neighborhood for sure, is a very leafy neighborhood. We have access to some tremendous outdoor spaces at large urban parks and the lakeshore and that sort of thing. So to me, that like putting something that is human scale um, into a neighborhood like this, where you can walk for most of your basic daily needs and amenities, you can connect with neighbors and make friends in your, in your, uh, the place where you live easily because there's lots of connecting points and um and if you're working you can easily you know work from home and still feel connected or hop on in our case a streetcar or a subway line and get to uh, get to uh, your workplace fairly easily and i guess in a smaller community that uh you, know, you can live work and play in a, in a tighter zone but i think that's that's probably what it means to me like this uh it's a bit of an intangible sense of place but i think that intangible is maybe made a bit more tangible when you put the built environment with people as in community and also with some sense of connectivity to uh, you know nature, even if it's just a tree in your front yard. I love how you kind of broke it out to, to, to it's just, it's not just the built environment, but, you know, connecting with all, basically we touched on probably about three different aspects you know the the nature the built environment and then kind of more of the social connectivity on, on top of all that and so it's really all three i mean if you take out one you're obviously missing something and uh, i think that's a great point you know kind of transition this a little bit more into you coming up and and finding your way in this role in in development and small scale development and and in general has there been a few people along the way that have kind of directed you helped you out uh been influential in your your decisions kind of going forward yeah that's a great question i would say the um when i first got involved in in urban housing i worked with a, a really talented designer and um, and he just had a great vision for what looked good. And he had a real passion for green building and wanting to integrate sustainable solutions into, into the materials and, but still have it be beautiful. Like he, he really um, emphasized the importance of, of design and beauty and how that needs to be integrated into a, into a home. So I, I really appreciate him for that. I, uh, I picked up a lot from a, a guy named John Marsh, just in terms of a general philosophy towards what place is mm -hmm. and how place can really 
be redemptive in terms of the impact on people. And I guess what I mean by that is that, you know, in a world where often we kind of get beat up and battered around a bit, whether it's, you know, excess pressure at work or, uh, you know, dealing with the stresses at home or anything in between, you know, having a place to come back to that is, that feels like it's your own and you fit in and it's for lack of a better word, safe, mm-hmm. but gives life. You know, there's, there are things that are dynamic and vibrant about it. And I think that's something that John uh, brings to his work that there's a restorative, uh, restorative um, approach mm-hmm. that weaves through all the things that he does. And um, I'm trying to think if there's anyone else recently, recently um, met an architect who's focused on this middle missing middle housing and he's written a book and he's, he's done some really creative work in terms of, uh, you know, carless neighborhoods. And uh, that I think is, is influencing my current thinking. Mm-hmm. Do you have a name for that? Yeah. His name is Daniel, <laughs> Daniel Polonic. Okay. His last name. Correct. But yeah. He's uh, he's done some really good thinking. I think he coined the missing middle housing term gotcha. maybe 10 plus years ago, and then has been mm-hmm. building his practice around that. But I think he's got a really interesting way of, of viewing, you know, what what a smaller scale built environment looks like that really serves people. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I feel like I've seen that book and I there's there's several books on my tab. So I'm gonna I'm gonna check that one out as well. Um so you know, we talked about influence here and, and what you're interested in. You know, we talked about Carlos neighborhoods and, and, you know, restorative architecture, but kind of what is, what is the biggest area in, in development that you're interested in personally that, that you'd like to dig into more? And you know what, you know what I really love are like landmark or historic buildings. Um, I've got a real, I've got a real nostalgia bug <laughs> and uh, you know, whenever I go to a, any any city or small town, I'm I'm just looking for, you know, what is what's old here and yeah. what are people doing with it. So whether it's a skyscraper in New York that was built in the you know early 20th century or you know a main uh, a main street and you know this small town for example that we're building in that's been there probably maybe around the similar similar time frame. You know, it's the craftsmanship, the thought, you know the the architectural significance of many of these buildings is really impressive. And um, so I think if I wasn't, you know, and this may, this may come for me, who knows, but if I wasn't focused on this, this modular space and this, you know, this particular project, I probably will be looking at historic buildings, you know, how to bring them back to their intended beauty and glory. Wow. Yeah. That's no easy task. That's, uh, that's I'm sure a- it's, yeah. <laughs> that'll be, that is something that, I, like you said, I, I enjoy walking down main streets and seeing how, and, and then at the same time, being able to look at pictures and see how, you know, things have progressed over the years and built out. And, uh, and it's, there's a couple books that kind of, you know, discuss this, um, strong towns, if you've mm-hmm. read that yet, but, you know, talking about development patterns and, vertical construction and how built, you know, cities really evolved. And it's interesting to see, you know, that when you're walking down a main street and you can see, you know, certain buildings that may have gotten scabbed on at one time, you see, you know, some crazy, you know, structural practices going on, but they're still standing kind of deal. 
Um, and then, you know, we, I actually had a discussion with uh, Elizabeth uh, Rosen from Rosen Preservation, and she deals with, you know, historic tax credits and everything. And it was really interesting to hear, you know, how the government here in the U.S. has, you know, over the last 40, 50 years has, you know, really allowed avenues for people to look into historic buildings um, because they understand that they're not financially viable <laughs> to, to do without some incentive. And uh, just because, you know, getting everything to code takes takes capital so yeah that's interesting i think these old buildings are a real cornerstone of of place too because it gives everyone such a strong connection to the past of you know where they live right there's a you know look at an old structure and realize that you know somebody who invested their life into that building perhaps is long gone mm -hmm. and it's still standing and it says something about where we've come from as as a community and then you know when you look around and see what's new being built today and projecting out where you know where that will stand maybe 25 or 50 years from now or something like that but it creates i think a, a sense of continuity between the generations that is one of the uh one of the aspects of place that maybe is again intangible but and people don't recognize it necessarily but a sense of that 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 adds to the sense of connection and and uh, rootedness i like that i like that that was great <laughs> You you have so many great points that I just can't I can't stop right now. So, <laughs> you know that's that's one that I haven't touched on before with uh, anybody else on the show is that you know there's a timeline and and obviously uh, you know our time here is is limited and and but being able to create these structures that people can enjoy in the future. And and then basically, kind of, for those in the the future looking back and seeing what, you know, there is that connection to to the place, and kind of the the thought processes that were taking place now and how those project forward. And so, I think the built environment says something about, as you say, the the thinking of the time, right? If you if you right. think about, you know, the. Uh, Victorian to the modernist to the postmodernist. There's different architectural types that are distinct to each one of those eras. Right. What well, was important to those people at that time versus you know present time, yeah. and and um, you know they're they're essentially time capsules for um, thought. Mm -hmm. it seems like. Um, like I said we're going down these trails, but I, I enjoy it. <laughs> So what does a, a day in the life of Todd look like right now? Well, that's a good question. So it's, it's fairly varied. Like with this, pro, this active project that we're trying to determine our next steps on, you know, I'm uh, actively re, reworking budgets, reworking timelines, talking with lenders. How does all this impact our, you know, the plans we had in place? Mm -hmm. um, you know, looking at... Uh, you know, there's two or three options we think we have to move forward, but also looking for other opportunities. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, one of our original ideas was to have some concentrated development in this particular town. So looking for opportunities where we can do something similar there. And um, we've got a few ongoing conversations that 
that just need to be picked up on on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, always, always sharpening underwriting skills, always looking for ways to build connections and ways to strengthen our teams by uh, finding different people who can do things better than I can do or we can do in-house or that sort of thing. So constantly expanding who we could be or should be working with that would help us, you know, achieve our goals. Those are probably where most of my time is spent and learning. There's like, there's, there's, uh, there's so much good material. I mean, you mentioned strong towns. I'm, I've breezed through it once and mm -hmm. I'm reading it more carefully again now. And uh, there's a lot of great courses that I'm, that I've done and I'm looking to do. There's just a lot of things as a developer to keep up on and, and learn from. So I'm usually trying to review or to take some kind of new course on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. Always sharpen the pencil. Right. Yeah. Is there or, any, talk, uh... or talking to people who are just further down the track and sure. have solved some of the problems that we're facing and or challenges. Right. Right. That, uh, that's what we're doing here. Right. Yeah, just, exactly. Uh, you're sharing your knowledge with, with others that are maybe just a little behind you on the track and coming up. And yeah. And, yeah. And I've, I've benefited a lot from listening to other placemakers in your podcast for exactly that reason. You know, with, we were chatting earlier about, uh, you know, a large development company doing something not too far away from where we live, but uh, learning how they approached their situation, which is, you know, massively larger than ours. There are things that I was able to distill down in terms of thinking or just tucking away for potential future use that were quite helpful. Sure. Yeah. The underlying values are, are probably similar. Um, so there's, there's certain things that you could definitely pull from, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, just curious, you know, looking forward, if we were to uh, Google your name, Todd, and say, you know, what, what does the history, what does the legacy of, of Todd um, hundred years down the road, what, what would it say? What would Google say about you? Man, what a great question. The Google bot. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, I think on a professional level, um, I think I would like, I would like something to be there to the effect of, you know, created places where people flourished. And when I think flourish, I think of, you know, just enjoying, enjoying uh, and growing in all areas of their life. So if what we're building, you know, hopefully it's built well enough that it's still standing 50 or hundred years from now. I mean, that's our goal, but um, you know, not just the building itself, which is the way we approached the, the places where we're building that people would, you know, think this is a good place to live. I enjoy living here. This, this uh, nurtures my family. This nurtures my you know, personal life, this nurtures my professional life, then I think I'd be satisfied with that. That's awesome. That's awesome. What about personally? Is it the personally, same? Uh, yeah, maybe the same, but I might take, yeah. I might take it down to, I would hope that, uh, you know, future generations of, of, uh, of Smiths would, uh, you know, say that I, that I was a good father, good husband, like those sorts of things. Right. Right. And I'm sure they intertwine and uh, I'm sure what makes you a better father and a better husband and, and whatnot is also the, the same things that kind of lend to your values on, on your professional side, really. So, yeah, I think so. There's definitely a, a, an expression of both of those in both of those areas of the mm -hmm. underlying values, which is to create flourishing for people 
you know, point them to something beyond themselves and, uh, and that there's something that endures, you know, beyond our lifetime here. Awesome. I know that's not an easy question. (laughs) So I appreciate it. (laughs) Making me think like a philosopher here. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, a lot of the topics we have, we, we delved into philosophy quite a bit and the two, the two kind of intertwine most likely, you know, the, or most often the, you know, development and philosophy or, uh, maybe most people don't see it like that, but you know, they're, they, they definitely touch each other quite a bit. So. Yeah, I think so. Cause I, I think we bring our worldview and our perspectives, which is basically how we think into our professions. So as you say, like these, you know, the philosophy, our personal philosophy or personal theology, those sorts of things impact how we carry ourselves into the world. Approach. So for sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, how can we find out more about you, Todd, and, and your development and kind of track you going forward? Yeah, so I'm, I'm uh, pretty active on LinkedIn. So if you uh, search for me on LinkedIn, you'll find me there. I think, uh, I can't remember the full LinkedIn URL, but it's S Todd Smith is the extension. And then you can find us on our website, which is department 356. And that's just the short form version of it. So DEPT356.com. And uh, would love to hear from anybody who'd like to be in touch. Love uh, meeting other people working in this space. Definitely. You have any parting words of advice for somebody that's looking to get into development or just starting out? Yeah, I would say, and uh, this is maybe something I, I, I need to take my own advice on a regular basis, <laughs> which is, you know, small steps. Like you can, you can, uh, you know, make a lot of progress with just consistent small steps get 1% better every day, right? Yeah, that's a, that's another great way of thinking about it. Yeah, perfect. Well, thank you again, Todd. I'd love to have you back on later and maybe get a recap of where you're at in the projects and your next project. I'd like to stay in touch. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me.